0: best thing to win the Masters. you, You will be here forever, as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy.
1: Welcome to episode 21 of the Talking Golf History podcast. Today on our show, we're going to shine a light on what I believe to be one of the most important restoration projects in golf course architecture. We are lucky enough to live in a new renaissance of golf design, where we, through restoration, pay homage to the greats who came before us. If you follow the Fried Egg and the Feed the Ball podcasts, you are no doubt aware of all the great restoration projects over the past decade. The great part about our story today is that we are talking about the restoration of a Dr. Alistair McKenzie course, the man who designed Cypress Point, Royal Melbourne, and Augusta National. But the course we're talking about today is open to the public and can be played for around $35. When Sharp Park is restored to its former glory, the proverbial pat on the back will belong to thousands, including the supporters of the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance, the City of San Francisco, the City of Pacifica, and most notably Richard Harris and Bo Lynx. Today on our show, we welcome Bo Lynx to share the history of Sharp Park and the battle to save it. Bo Lynx is a native of San Francisco, who has practiced law in the Bay Area since 1974. He's been a member of the Green Committee of the USGA since 1990, and serves on the board of directors for the First Tee of San Francisco. As an active golfer and historian, Bo has written three books, the first of which, Follow the Wind, then followed by Riverbank Tweed and "Robat Jenkins, Tales from the Caddy Yard, and finally, Golf Poems. In 2007 and 2008, Bo Lynx won back-to-back Lido Design Contest Awards by the Alistair McKenzie Society. But his latest endeavor is our focus for today's show, co-founding the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance, and his work to save and then restore Alistair McKenzie's Sharp Park. Bo, thank you so much for joining the 21st episode of Talking Golf History.
0: Glad to be here.
1: Bo, Again, I, I'm not sure what to think of you here. I've got uh, you're an author, a published author. You're a golf historian. You're a two-time winner of the Lido Design Competition, uh, and during the daytime, you uh, pay the bills by being a lawyer. How does one get down? How does one even start down this path? I mean, you're so your background's so diverse in golf. How do how do we how did that kick off?
0: Well, you know, if you play golf and and you study golf courses, you almost can't help but get mesmerized by golf architecture. And I'll never forget the first time I saw Pasatiempo. I was 16 years old, which was uh, well over 50 years ago. And it blew me away how interesting it was just to look at. And I didn't know who designed it. Or really what it was. I just knew that it was someplace that I, I wanted to be and I wanted to play golf there and I wanted to understand it. And then when I started to play Sharp Park, which was at about the same time, um, I didn't know who designed it. I just knew that it was really a cool golf course. And as I got older and got into the architecture and the history, I was curious and I went back and found some newspaper articles about Alistair McKenzie being in San Francisco and the Bay Area and being in Pacifica. And it just, you know, shocked me that he had designed this course that nobody really knew he had done. And uh, the full story is people knew it at the time and it was celebrated at the time. But it's like everybody suddenly got amnesia and forgot about it. And one of the things I was bound and determined to do was to make sure nobody would ever again forget the provenance of this very special place. And when you go into the history and when you look at the maps and look at the original design, it is amazing what he created down there, positively amazing. And for people who, who know Augusta and know Cyprus and know Royal Melbourne and all these other great places he built, the, the, the beauty ultimately of Sharp Park is not that it's entitled to be in the same sentence as those places, But it's not locked behind a gate. It's open to the public for a very modest green fee. And that makes it uh, even more interesting, more special, more unique, and more worth preserving.
1: Let's dive into the early history. First of all, how did we arrive with the name Sharp Park? And what was the property prior to being a golf course?
0: Well, prior to being a golf course, it was uh, really two things, largely a salt marsh. And there was uh, part of it used as, as an artichoke farm. And the name Sharp Park really comes from uh, a lawyer, I'm happy to say, named George, named George Sharp, who literally dropped dead in a San Francisco courtroom in 1882. He had come around uh, Cape Horn in the Gold Rush and made a fortune in the city. And his wife wanted to create a memorial to him. And she originally tried to have a gate constructed in Golden Gate Park. And they said, we're not going to have a memorial there. And it turns out that that in her estate, there was this ranch down uh, in in Pacifica at Salada Beach. That was the salt marsh, the artichoke farm. That area was called uh, Salada Beach back then. And she, her estate, gave that to the city on the condition that it be used for a public park or playground. And about 10 years after that gift, John McLaren, who was the man who created Golden Gate Park, knew that the city needed a third golf course because Lincoln Park and Harding Park, where they're going to play the PGA next year, uh, were overrun with golfers. There weren't uh, weren't tee times available for people who wanted to play golf. And so Mackenzie was brought in to design a golf course down at Salada Beach. And he did it for no fee, but on the condition that if the course was actually built, they would hire him to construct it. And uh, he designed it. Uh, They went ahead and built it, and to to the deal, they hired him, and he, along with Chandler Egan and Robert Hunter Jr., uh, built the golf course. And if you look at the original maps, uh, you will see all of his design principles in the ground there, including two reproductions of his famous Lido hole. It's called Sharp Park because George Sharp and his widow's estate gave that land to the city. That's how it gets that name.
1: Wow. So the original idea wasn't necessarily to create a crown jewel of San Francisco's golf courses. That was just incidental, would you say?
0: Um, No, I I, I wouldn't say that. I I would say that that, the original idea was to give this land for a public park. Mm -hmm. But John McLaren's idea was he knew who McKenzie was. This was 1927, okay? He knew who McKenzie was. He was already working on the Meadow Club uh, up in Marin County. He had done the Claremont Club over in Oakland. Uh, He had done the Union League Club, which today is known as Green Hills. He had had done Cypress Point, was just getting ready to open. Uh, McLaren, who himself was world famous, he knew who McKenzie was, and he wanted him to create uh, a great public golf course for the city, and when it was in the design phase, everybody was talking about it as, quote, the second St. Andrews, and really what he he did was he created a Scottish Lynx on the shore of the Pacific, and he intended to create something that would be memorable, and most importantly, that would be public, and he made good on that promise, and it opened in 1932 to great fanfare. And again, you, you look at those original maps and it is just phenomenal. Double fairways, double T's, heaving greens, cloud shaped bunkers. Uh, the, the choices of the the the, the like poor par four and a half holes, sort of like the 13th Augusta. Um, he didn't build an impossible golf course. He didn't build a golf course that like Oakmont is uh, will beat you to death. He built a golf course that was going to be exhilarating for players, fun to play. And the one thing that he always wanted players to say when they were done was this. Hey, I'd like to play that again. Can I go back out and play another 18? That's what McKenzie's all about, is making people love the game and love playing and want to get out there and challenge themselves.
1: That's fantastic. So, Dr. Alistair McKenzie as you mentioned, is regarded as one of the greatest golf course architects in history. And yet most people can only dream of playing his golf courses, with a few exceptions. Was Mackenzie a fan of municipal golf?
0: There's no question about it. He One of his uh, interesting quotes was that there ought to be a municipal golf course in every community in the world because it uplifts people. It teaches them things. It's great for health and relaxation. You know, he was a medical man. And and one of his lines was, I gave people a prescription to go play golf. I'd never see them again. You know, they they didn't have any they didn't have any problems once they started teeing it up and chasing the ball around. And uh, absolutely, he believed in municipal golf. And he was a fierce advocate for that. And uh, it's unfortunate that so many of his courses are private. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. But it's the fact that the average golfer doesn't get a chance to experience them.
1: You think he felt the same way?
0: I do, yeah. I, I do think he felt I don't think he had any disdain for private clubs, okay? Because that was where he really made his living really, as a golf course architect. But what he wanted was he wanted the game to grow. He wanted it to be accessible. He believed that, that it was a great thing for communities to have these facilities for public recreation. And he wrote about that in his books.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I when I think of McKinsey's designs uh, that are open to the public, I mean, off the top of my head, I can really only think of three. Sharp Park, Paseo Tempo, and Northwood. Now, I believe Bayside in the Bronx was once a public course, but of course it's now gone.
0: Well, there's Hagen Oaks. Uh, Hagen Oaks in Sacramento is one. Um, and, uh, they're not, they're not very many. Now they're, they're the university courses at, at Ann Arbor and at, yep. uh, at Ohio state. Well, I think you have um, to play
1: with a member of the faculty or a student even to play those. It, it may, it, it may be true.
0: And, and I would just say this, that, that of all of those public McKenzie courses, none of them is close to being what Sharp Park is architecturally. And I can only tell you that, I've been down there with a number of really noted architects. I'll mention three of them in particular. Uh, One is Tom Doak, who has been a wonderful help to us in this effort to restore the golf course. Another is Jim Urbina, who used to work with Tom and uh, did with him the courses uh, Pacific Dunes and Old McDonald up at, uh, at, at Bandon. And the third is Jay Blasey, who's one of the great young architects in America, who has been our our local go to guy uh, on the project. And and each of them, you know, says the same thing. Does the city understand what it's got here? Uh, and, And that's part of our job is teaching the city that may have, you know, treated Sharp Park a bit like a stepchild over the years that, you know, this isn't a stepchild. This is maybe your greatest golf course. And uh, we're going to help you bring it back to life and let it reclaim its rightful place in the pantheon of great golf venues.
1: Yeah, it is amazing, right? I mean, you can certainly see why people would want to fight for it. Um, I I can't imagine, you know, if, if there's, I don't know, some other life out there that McKinsey could probably believe the shape that it's in now versus what he gave the city as almost a gift in design, uh, just paying for the construction.
0: Well, I I have to tell you a funny story that that uh, illustrates some of this, that we were down there with with uh, Tom and Jay and my colleague, Rich Harris, who he and I have been the two guys in the foxhole for 12, 15 years now. Um, and we we located, Richard and I, an original drainage map that had the dimensions of the original greens on it from nineteen
1: thirty-two. Wow. What and a, so, where did you find so those?
0: We found it in the basement of the recreation and park department headquarters. They didn't even know they had it. Okay. And and you know if you remember if you remember the last scene in Indiana Jones when they 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 take that crate and they put it in the warehouse. It's like going in there and we pull it off the the shelf and it just blew us away. Anyway, fast forward. Blasey takes the dimensions off that map, plots them on a GPS program and he and Tom and Rich and I go out there and we flag three or four greens to show what they originally looked like because they shrink up in the mowing patterns. And and, and it they're like three times the size of the greens now and so dope comes up with this idea to why don't we just try mowing out a couple greens it's not rebuild really and mow them out and we did that we did that about a year and a half ago and they're playing them now and and all the players realize God this is so cool I didn't know you could put a flag there gee I can bank it off the hump and play it over the hill and it's so much more fun and and dope is on the greens and this is what led to the mowing out idea is he, he looks at the greens he, we dig some core samples and he says you know it's amazing the city has taken such poor care of this golf course for 80 years i'm standing on mckenzie's green he says, usually when I go into golf courses, I've got to rip them up and undo all the stuff they did because of all the top dressing and the fertilization. He says, you don't have to do it here. You've got the original platform to play on. And so we're we're it's slowly going like around the golf course. It's like
1: Askernish, right? It's like Askernish.
0: This, uh, well, you know. it, it, it is like Askernish. which was, was called the ghost course. That's exactly what this is. And, uh, it's in a little better condition than that was, you know, when they, when they found it's been
1: it played for a hundred years. Uh,
0: yeah. But, but, uh, the, the point is we're now going around one green at a time to mow them out. And, uh, we hope in the next, uh, five years or so, we will have toured the whole golf course with new tees, redone bunkers, you know, restored greens and try and do it. It's really done as part of the historic maintenance of the property. It, It doesn't require uh, environmental review. It doesn't require an environmental impact report. It's just simple maintenance and providing the resources necessary. And uh, one of the things that uh, has been a breakthrough for us is the city, uh, I think, at long last, has realized our commitment, realized how serious we are about it. And we're bringing substantial philanthropic resources to the table. And now... They want to partner with us. This is the latest breakthrough. We're still working out some of the details, but the point is they know what they've got. They don't want to lose it. And even though they may be besieged with other civic issues and other demands uh, on their budgets, uh, we're coming forward to say, you know what? It's a little bit like the college alumni coming to buy the books for the library uh, or a successful alumnus saying, you know, I want a new chemistry lab and I'll pay for it. And and we're going to provide the resources to restore this golf course. That's what we're about doing. And uh, uh, we're very passionate about it. I am very passionate about it. And my line to every golfer is, if you want public golf like this, you better be prepared to work for it, fight for it, and to some degree, pay for it. You got to make your contributions. And, and you know, if if you can only give a dollar, give a dollar. If you can give $100, give $100. Uh, do what you can do, but don't turn your back on it or it won't be there.
1: Yeah, if, no one, if you're not willing to take care of it, nobody else will. That's ultimately, I think, what we're learning across the country. If you're not willing to fight for something that you believe in, it will go away.
0: Look, look at it this way, Connor. What, what does golf teach us when we play? Fix your ball marks. Yeah. Replace your divot. Rake the bunker. Now, what does it tell you? Leave the place better than you found it, because there's going to be somebody coming along behind you. That's what this is all about, is saying, you know, we had our time with Sharp, and we want it to be better. We don't want it to be, we want it to be better for the next generation, for all those kids out there who may be discovering the game, who may not know who we are, what we're doing. You know, one of these days, they're going to play a restored Sharp Park, and they're going to say, who the heck created this place? How did this endure? And I don't care if it's still a mystery. I don't care if anybody knows my name. That isn't what this is about. I want them to know the name Sharp Park, and I want them to experience what's down there. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been there?
1: I have not. No, I'm ashamed that I haven't. I was just in San Francisco. No, no.
0: I'm ashamed. No, I I am. I I I say it for a reason. And the reason I say it is that everybody who goes there who has never been there. They all come away with the same feeling. And the feeling is, my God, this is so special. It's so beautiful. It's so cool. And the vibe down there with the local golfers, the the, the clubhouse bar, it's, you know, it's incredible. It's just amazing. And, uh, you know, it's there's a real, you, you can maybe tell a little bit in my voice, but it's an exciting project to be involved in. It's a thrill to, uh, as I say, I'm participating now in the real Lido design contest. <laughs> I'm not drawing it on paper. I'm trying to save something the good doctor gave us. Uh, and uh, it, it's, uh, believe me, it's well worth the endeavor, well worth the effort.
1: Yeah, before I jump back into the history, I, I'm. I, this is why I think this is so important. Uh, as much as anything, I think golf now more than ever has a uh a serious pr issue right uh and i think it has probably for years that kind of country club only a you know a rich man's sport it's probably had that connotation for a long time in here we have alistair McKenzie's you know public masterpiece on the sea uh to my knowledge and you correct me uh, it's the only public golf course he designed that is on the water is that right
0: that is correct that is correct
1: and that is correct not only do, the, do you have the ability to play it or everybody has the ability to play it even more so, is that it's completely affordable. It is more affordable than me going to most of the municipal golf courses around me in Florida
0: Well, not only that, not only that, and that's important. It's also the, the people who play there are so diverse. And, you know, again, delving back into the history, you know, the Western States Golf Association, which is one of the largest African-American golf associations in America, held one of its first organizing tournaments at Sharp Park in 1955. And that was one of the key places to fight for the integration of the PGA Tour. And if you go to Sharp Park today, there are there are ditch diggers playing with judges, uh, policemen playing with bank executives, stockbrokers uh, playing with plumbers. Uh, it's the most amazing collection of people, all united by one thing: they love the game. They love this place.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. All right, because I'm a history guy, we got to jump back into it a little bit. <laughs>
0: Go, so, for, go for it.
1: For the people at home, for the people who've never seen the layout of the course, Bo, I know you're a painter. I read that about you. Is that correct first before I ask this question? <laughs> that, is, that is correct. I can't imagine there's too many other Bo links out there. So I want you to paint a picture for the listeners of McKinsey's original design at Sharp Park in its original state and tell them how good it was.
0: Well, the first hole was about 440 yards long, a par 4 that went southwest down uh, toward the lagoon. The second hole was a drivable par 4 that went right to the edge of the the ocean. Uh, The third hole played right down the beach, literally on the beach for about 390 yards. The fourth hole was a short little downhill par 3 in the dunes. The fifth hole was his first Lido hole that had a split fairway and an island uh, T a little, on a little spit, really more like a peninsula than an island. But it had a fairway that was completely separate that gave you a shortcut to the green. Uh, then another short three par uh, heading due west to the ocean. Then you played right back down the beach in a southerly direction. Uh, then you came into the dunes again and you played a par four that's very similar to the uh, the, the sixth hole at Royal Melbourne. Um, And then you uh, turn for home in a uh, long par four back to the clubhouse. And so he sets you off from the beginning to get you right out to the ocean to experience it with the breeze and and all that stuff right against your cheek and the uh, scent of the salt water in your nostrils, all that stuff. And then uh, you went along the lagoon. Uh, the, The tenth hole was the second Lido hole. And then a little three-par that went over an edge of the lagoon. And then he came back with a short uh, five-par that brought you back to the clubhouse. 12 hole came back to the clubhouse. And then you went out uh, and played a, a little loop, 13, 14, 15, went away from the clubhouse, came back to the clubhouse, went back away from the clubhouse. So you're, you can see how golfers are crossing each other uh, all the time. And Community, absolutely. And then there was a, another short little uh, three par over a creek uh, to a very well-guarded green. Then a, uh, a good-sized par five, good size in those days, about 530 yards. And then a long par four to finish. Par 71, it was about uh, 63.50, so it was never a super long golf course. But it had long par fours. It had drivable par fours. It had a couple pretty good size three pars. It had a couple of, you know, wedge shot three pars. Uh, it had uh, five pars you could hit in two, uh, five pars you couldn't hit in two. It had, it had variety. The holes went in all directions. There was this rolling landscape. You had uh, so many of these holes where the way he did the bunkering, he foreshortened the look of, of, of the flagstick. So he tricked your eye with camouflage to misjudge the distance. Um, he had all the, these greens were, were up and down side to side. Uh, it was just, it was a delight to play. That's all I can say. It was a delight visually. It was a delight physically.
1: And it was pure McKenzie, right? He had no oversight. He didn't have a owner saying, no, 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 no. The par three needs to go here. Right. He had full canvas.
0: He built what he wanted. He built what he wanted. And, uh, you know, again, he wrote about it in in, in terms of saying that the, the golfing ground in San Francisco and to the south of it was some of the best terrain he had ever seen for growing turf and building golf holes. And, you know, a big feature of his was to recreate nature. And he didn't move a lot of dirt at Sharp Park, that the big change he made was to take this uh, salt marsh. It's called Laguna Salada, which means salty lake in Spanish. And he, he uh, blocked it off from the ocean and he converted it to fresh water. And ironically, that's the move that created what potentially became habitat to the Cal- California red legged frog and the San Francisco garter snake. And we had some so called environmentalists trying to tell us that the golf course was was killing the snake and killing the frogs when it was just the opposite is the golf course created their habitat
1: that's unbelievable so you mentioned it just now that uh sharp parks parallels to the lost McKinsey design at lido um shortly after sharp park dr Alistair McKinsey and bobby jones designed augusta national are there any design features or parallels that you've seen that make the leap to augusta national
0: well one of the things that that I do see, and I do think it's a parallel. In the original design of Sharp Park, if you look at the maps, there were creeks going everywhere. Okay, Now, the land does not have the undulation that Augusta had, and people who, uh, listeners who maybe just watch the Masters on television, you can't begin to imagine the undulation at Augusta so National. So true. It is, it, it, you, you can't. You have to go there, and you have to walk it, and you have to see it. Um, but Here you have Ray's Creek that, you know, crosses the 12th green, uh, runs down the 13th fairway, crosses in front of that green. There was about three or four holes at Sharp where that happened as well. And I'm not saying that McKenzie uh, created that feature. I'm just saying that was at the land. He used it where it was. And that was a parallel feature. It's there at Augusta, too. Uh, He didn't create it at Augusta. He didn't create it at Sharp. He used it because it was there. And he was able to take advantage of what the land gave him, and he showed that at Sharp. He showed it. He showed it everywhere he went. Yeah.
1: Does that do those creeks? Do they still exist at Sharp Park?
0: A number of them do. There's a, a couple of them been uh, culverted over, um, but they are still there. There's a creek that cuts in front of the first green. Uh, the uh, current eighth hole there which would have been the old 14th on the original routing. Uh, The creek is still there. We'd love to see it uh, come in front of the green again. That's still uh, to be determined. But there's a creek that runs along the uh, 9th fairway, and and there are underground culverts that go into uh, Laguna Salada now that drain some of the water there. Um, But uh, a a lot of that uh, is gone uh, except for these two or three spots. Um the big thing you have is you 've got uh fourteen of the original holes, twelve full holes, and parts of two others they're still there, still in play uh eighty seven years after the course opened so so what he built is largely still that uh, just needs some t l. c to bring it back
1: do we know do you know how much the co- the the cost was to build the course? do we have those numbers? do we know that?
0: You know, I've never actually seen a figure, but it wasn't much. I know it wasn't much. It was it, it was built in 1930 and 31, you know, right at the start of the Depression. Um, and, again, you know, Mackenzie was economical, and he wasn't a budget buster. Um, uh, he didn't build uh, island greens and stuff like that. I, I happen to like the 17th hole of TPC. Uh, I think Pete Dye is – uh if, if Mackenzie's close to having an equal, Pete Dye may be it, particularly with all the, the people he spawned in the industry. But, but, but you know, M- McKenzie uh, uh, was not a budget buster. He, he believes in the economy of construction, the economy of maintenance. And uh, uh, I, I don't think it costs a lot of money to build a golf course. And I don't think it'll cost a lot of money to restore it if it's done right.
1: Yeah, and, and the course was built during the Great Depression. Now, maybe just touch on this. We don't have to go deep into it. But I understand the clubhouse was a WPA project. Is that correct?
0: Built by the same firm that designed San Francisco City Hall. That's right.
1: Really? Yeah. And, it's a, and it's, is it still in full form? Because it was a beautiful uh, building back well, in the day.
0: Well, it, it, it is. It, it, like the golf course, it needs infrastructure. You know, uh, it needs new systems. And again, that's one of the things we're working on to to make happen. Uh, You know, it's one of these things where we spent probably the first seven, eight years of our effort fending off this so-called environmental effort to close the golf course. And we won seven, eight, nine times in a row. And right now the the waters are calm, if I can use that analogy. Um, We've won. uh, And as far as we're concerned, we've saved it. Now it's, it's about restoring it, and that's the exciting part as we're embarking on that work. I mentioned the projects to, uh, to mow out the greens. We, you know, we want to do new tees. We want to do tree work. Um, one of the exciting things we did last year that was, uh, yes, it was cosmetic, but it's also meaningful culturally, we did a hole naming project where we named all 18 holes so that when you go around the golf course now, you quite literally get – a walking tour of Mackenzie's life. Oh, that's and, cool. And uh, the holes are named about named after significant people, significant events, significant things in his life. Uh, you know, one hole, the uh, the par five thirteenth is named Sandbelt, an homage to his work in uh, in Australia. And uh, uh, you know, one of the holes is, is called Egan for Chandler Egan, who helped him. One for Marion, one for Marion Hollins, who hired him to do Cyprus. Um, one for Bobby Jones who, you know, brought him down to Augusta. Um, and it's just, uh, one of them's Al Woodley, one of his first uh, golf courses. So, uh, a lot of fun to do that.
1: Brilliant idea, right? Brilliant idea. Love that. Experience. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. So you mentioned that it's not all there. How long did it remain in its original state and what happened to change the layout and design? So I, I and I'll just say this, I know I read, uh, Daniel Wexler's book, and he shares one of the, I'd say, I'd call it lore, of the, the story of the sea reclaiming the holes. I understand that's not true. Maybe you could go into, you know,
0: well, how long does let, let me, Yeah, please. So, so let, me, let me tell you. So I contacted Dan, who's a very nice guy, and I said, I'm just curious. I said, you know, I'm trying to find some newspaper articles. You know, when did that happen? Where, what's your source? He says, well, I talked to, Jack Fleming told me that. He was the former superintendent of the Olympic Club. His father, uh, uh, John Fleming, was one of McKenzie's uh, construction people at Cyprus and, and, and other courses. And, and to be honest with you, it is, it, it's an urban legend. And, and that went from Wexler's book uh, called Missing Links um, Tom Doke had a mention of a similar thing in his book, The Life and, and uh, Work of Dr. Alistair Mackenzie, his biography of Mackenzie. And I, I talked to Tom about it. He says, "Yeah, I, I got that from from Jack Fleming." So <laughs> I was able to I was able to locate a uh, an aerial survey photograph from 1941, which you know this legend would have it that it, a couple of years after it opened, it washed away. Okay, the whole golf course washed away. That's the way it was written.
1: Yeah, that's the urban
0: legend. I said that, that. So, so I'm going.
1: Well,
0: what's that? Was it 1934, 1935? I got this photo from 1941. Whole golf course is there. Wow. So, so I start poking around in the newspaper and archives room at the city library, and I find a couple of articles in 1940. There, there. Admittedly, there were some bad storms down there, and there was some drainage problem but the course did not wash away. That didn't happen. What happened was the city chose to abandon the ocean holes. And when I say these holes were built on the beach, I've got pictures of them. They were on the beach. Okay. The city decides that, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a, I'll I'll call it, whether you call it a dike or a seawall, we're going to build a seawall to keep The ocean incursion away. And by the way, there are neighborhoods, there are residential neighborhoods north and south of the golf course that they had to protect as well. So they built this seawall in 1941, 1942 and left uh, to the dunes, abandoned the two ocean holes and a couple of the others, the uh, the eighth, the uh, the fourth and the sixth. um, They just let them go. Those holes are still there today. You can can see them. They're still there. You can see them. I've got pictures of them. you can see them. And we did a book on the golf course called Alistair McKenzie's Legacy of Public Golf at Sharp Park. And there are pictures of them in there. But long story short, they built four new holes east of of a highway that adjoins the golf course that were designed by John Fleming. And I will tell you, Connor, they're great holes. They're really good golf holes. Now, are they the equal of the original holes? I would say No for the simple reason that McKenzie built the original holes and Fleming built the replacement holes, but they're darn good golf holes, they're darn good golf holes. And, uh, so that's the, the golf course that we have today. And, you know, for, for all the historians, one of the things that, uh, whether we, we like to admit it or not, every golf course is a living thing. They evolve, they change. Augusta national is not the course today that McKenzie designed in 1933.
1: Yeah, there, we did a it's, podcast it's, on that. It, I can't agree more.
0: Yeah, and, and it doesn't mean there's anything no, wrong with it.
1: No, it doesn't um, shame it's just, it. It's, right. it's, it's, it's,
0: not, it's not the same. And, and what is nice about Sharp is we've got 12 holes and parts of two others that are the same, that haven't been changed. And And this is a chance to say... You can play them the way Mackenzie laid them out. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's exciting just as an exercise. Just It's sort of like saying, you know, here we are in a parking lot in the rain and we see this painting on the ground. And we realize, oh, my God, that was done by da Vinci. They left it out in the rain. What did they do that for? We're going to take it inside. We're going to get an art historian in here and an art re- restore, restoration expert, and we're going to restore it. That's what Sharp Park is all about. It's the painting that got left out in the rain. And through no, you know, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not angry at anybody, although I suppose I could be. Maybe I should be, but I'm not. I'm just saying we have a chance to do right by this place, and we're going to do right by it.
1: Yeah, I struggle. I mean, I struggle with this part, and you kind of alluded to it before. But here we have this this crown jewel, this this golf course that was um, nationally renowned, it was celebrated uh, in San Francisco, but in the state of California, it's diverse, uh, as you mentioned, uh, hosting uh, you know tournaments uh, for African Americans. You have all these things going for it, and then, you know, it's public, it's affordable, it's on the coastline. What happened? I mean, how how does that get lost in the shuffle of the I mean, I'll tell you what it happened. How, it wasn't I, the, I, yeah. Go ahead.
0: I'll tell you what happened. Um, Just being straight up about it. People got lazy. Okay, they took it for granted. And, and, you know, if you look at what happened with Harding Park, it's the same thing. You know, people are going to see an unbelievable golf course next May when the PGA is played there. Well, I'm going to tell you something. 20 years ago, that place, when I say it was falling apart, that isn't true. It had fallen apart. It was going to be gone. It was like Mother Nature saying, hey, I want my baby back. (laughs) Give it back to me if you don't want it. And along along came Sandy Tatum, who, if there's a patron saint for golfers today, he's it. Okay. An unbelievable human being. Single-handedly, he put the pieces in place. And he, he got to the politicians to convince them of what could be done. And he won that fight, and Harding Park was restored. And it's the old line of failure's an orphan, but success has a thousand fathers. Well, now it's everybody's idea. And, and you know, again, I don't care. Claim it if you want to claim it. It's been restored. It's thriving. It, it makes money. There's a first T program. Kids' lives are being transformed. It, it's, a, it's an exemplar to go back to Mackenzie of what a golf course can do for a community, okay? And, and, you know, Harding does it uh, on a big stage with all the lights on. Sharp Park does it uh, on a lower level. You know, the local political clubs meet there. The Rotary Club, I think, uh, may use it from time to time. It's a community center for Pacifica, you know? And the other thing is it's owned by San Francisco. It's not in the city limits. And it does become kind of an orphan. You know, uh, if you look at your at city hall, you're going to put your money in Golden Gate Park before you're going to put it down in Pacifica to Sharp Park, even though you own it. And you have the same responsibilities. And we can sit here and we can bemoan that. We can complain about it or we can roll up our sleeves and say, you know what? We're going to fix it. We're going to help you. We're going to do what good citizens do. We're going to help our city. We're going to help our city fix something that needs fixing. We would have lost the, we would have lost the cable cars in 1973 yeah. if Frida Klusberg hadn't chained herself to one of them and said, you're going to take these over my dead body.
1: It's so true. And I, mean, I just – I look at this whole thing and, and I, you know maybe go I, – I think maybe you alluded to it. Maybe you told enough of the story of that the course was going to die. The environmentalists were coming for it, and they wanted it basically returned back to nature. Is this where you got involved? I mean, how did you get involved in this fight?
0: We were involved before that. Um, Sandy Tame's a good friend of mine. You know, he's no longer with us. But I was one of these people who carried his briefcase for him on Harding Park, and I'd show up at all the meetings, and I'd testify. And he'd always poke me in the elbow, and he'd say, you know, Bo, you know what we got to do next? we got to save Sharp. And, And so as early as 2004, I started writing little blurbs about it, about the need to restore it and getting into the history of it. And we had been working toward trying to put a program together. Sandy was part of the effort. And then the next thing we knew, here were these environmentalists saying in approximately 2007, 2008, Oh, we've we've got the frog and the snake and you can't pump water. You can't do this. You can't do that. And one by one, we debunked every single one of their points and their theories. And then they, they got together and they filed a lawsuit against the city to shut it down. And we beat them on that. And they filed another one in San Mateo County. The first one was in federal court. Then they went to San Mateo County. They went to San Francisco County. They went to the Coastal Commission. They went, they went everywhere. And we beat them everywhere. And, and part of it uh, was getting the people in Pacifica to understand how important this is and getting the, the civic leaders in San Francisco to understand how important it is. Um, you know, the city is great because it has an opera. It's great because it has three world-class art museums. It has a symphony. Uh, It has culture. Obviously, the food, all that stuff is great. It has great beauty. It has an architectural heritage, and it has great golf courses, great golf course. The little course in Golden Gate Park is unbelievable. Uh, Lincoln Park is maybe the most scenic golf course in the world. Great place for beginners. These are all part of the city's legacy and what we have succeeded in doing and it's still a work in progress is teaching non-golfers about the value of these properties and why they benefit from having them there. It's not us against you. It's not I win and you lose. It's not a a zero sum game as all the logicians might say. It's an effort to say we are one community with a lot of resources for a lot of things. There ought to be a skateboard park. Okay. There ought to be basketball courts. There ought to be soccer fields, and there sure as heck ought to be golf courses.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's it's so true, and I think it's overlooked. I think it probably in a lot of communities, and I don't know of too many other stories of someone fighting that hard to keep a golf course alive. And do you think do you think you've reached that point where it's no longer the fight for existence? It's now the fight for restoration are we are we to that point now
0: well i'd I'd like to think that but i can also say honestly and a bit sadly that i think there's always a chance that somebody may come along to say what do we need this for and the long and the short of all this is it's always a fight for survival if you don't think it's it's a fight for survival you're not going to survive um, and, uh, you know, one of one of my lines is I may lose, but I'm going to go down swinging. Um, we are not backing down. We're not backing off. We will see this through and, and we will get there. We will get there. Um, you know, it's we do have momentum. Uh, people recognize that they know it. Um, and and I, I say it as a compliment to leaders in the Recreation and Park Department. They understand what, what we want to do, and they, want, they would like to see us do it, and they'd like to help us. They have their own sets of constraints and rules, and, and we have to play within them, and we will do that, of course. I mean, what golfer doesn't play within the rules, right? Um, but, but it'll happen bit by bit. It's always a little slower than you like, but it's, it's happening now, you know, if you go down and you see a couple of those greens that have been restored and some of the work that's cleared out, you talk to the golfers there. They'll tell you that improvements are, have been made, are being made, and will be made. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, we're on the upswing. We're positive. A lot of good things going on. A lot of work yet to do. Still a lot of things uncertain. But what I hope our listeners take away is this is important. They ought to know about it. And if they want to learn more about it, uh they can go to sfpublicgolf.org. There are all kinds of historical resources there for them to study and read and, and enjoy. And enjoy. It's it's not supposed to be uh a, a brain cramp. We want people to enjoy reading about this place and learning about it. Yeah, and seeing game. it and experiencing it. Right? It's a game. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And Mackenzie knew that better than anybody.
1: Yeah. So walk me through what what are what are the next steps? So we fought off extinction, at least for now, or any fights to get it. What, what? Let's. If you have a checklist of things that you want to get accomplished, some let's just say um, maybe you know pie in the sky, and some are going to be very you know it's matter of fact. Give me give me an idea of what needs to be done.
0: I, I will tell you that there's there's really no pie in the sky. It's all doable, and we do have a, a, a checklist. Um, one of the things I've advocated is we did two greens last year. I'd like to see us do two or three a year until we're done with them all. Just mow them out to the original dimensions. And then, you know, obviously uh, care for them, tend to them uh, as naturally as we can to make sure that the mown-out areas mirror the, the, the green areas that, that have been in existence. So it's one putting surface. You don't just say, oh, I'm on this new area. You're, you're on one green. Mow them all out. Two, three a year till we get them all done. Start with uh, we got three holes in mind: the first hole, the second hole, and the uh, the tenth hole to restore the bunkers on those holes. And and you know, again, it's a, it's a class. He built a hole at uh, Moortown as an advertisement to teach people, show people golf course could be like and they immediately subscribed up the whole yeah i don't the think whole, they had the um, money the right? whole golf course they,
1: they didn't have the money to so right, just do right, one right. hole
0: right right so so the idea here is to um do that with with some of these bunkers to show people what a mckenzie bunker really looks like not the shrunk up things that are there now and then we we'd like to do uh, like do all the tees, including uh installing a set of what we would call family tees, a short course for kids and parents and grandparents to go play and, and enjoy it. Um, we, we would like to have a new, uh, practice putting green. We'd like to have a new maintenance, uh, facility for them there, uh, including a new cart barn with a new fleet of carts, um, and do a lot of tree work to open it up, you know, remove, uh, the trees that are dying, um, and open up the light and air, which of course is going to improve, uh, uh, turf quality. And, uh, Just go one hole at a time till we're done with all 18 of them.
1: Now, any thoughts or any hopes or any chance, I suppose, of going after to try to reclaim the lost holes that are out in the dunes? What
0: are your thoughts? Well, you you are talking to a dreamer. Um, uh, We're we're, we're not going to get the ocean holes back that were on the ocean because the seawall's there. But uh, Richard, Richard and I and Tom and Jay have staked out the old sixth hole, which played uh, due west toward the sea, um, kind of plays almost into the seawall now. And we would like to, to rebuild that hole. We think we can do it uh, without uh, needing any special dispensation from the, the Coastal Commission. Um, we're in the process of getting a legal opinion on that and working with the city attorney's office uh, to see if we can really do that. Um I would love to see us get the old eighth hole back, the old fourth hole. That may be a stretch because they're pretty close to the frog habitat. And, and, you know, as much as I'd like to do it, if I were king, I'd do it, okay? But you know what? We've existed for since 1941 without those holes. It's all good, okay? You could just, if we just fix what's on the ground today, it's a home run. Okay. It's a home run. And again, I come back to the fact that Augusta doesn't have the routing exactly like it was in 1934. Um, I I play a lot of my golf at the Olympic club. That isn't the same as it was in 1924. Um, Changes get made to golf courses. And uh, what we've got on the ground uh, is pretty darn special. And uh, when I see the gleam in Doke's eye and in Urbina's eyes and in Jay Blasey's eyes. And, you know, I just you mentioned my painting. I'd sent a, a painting I'd done down to uh, Ben Crenshaw, who's been very nice to me over the years. And is as nice a guy in real life as you read about. He's probably nicer than you read about. And he sent me a very nice thank you note. And the last line was, keep doing what you're doing at Sharp Park. And my point is, he knows about it. He knows what it is, and he cares about it. And, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to do as much as we can, and I would only ask of everybody just stay with us, support us, be by our side till the job is done, and in the meantime, get down there, see it, walk it, play it, because once you do that, you will have the love affair with Sharp Park, that Rich Harris and I have had for all these years, and so many of others have had.
1: Yeah. Now, Bo, what do you need to make all this happen? You mentioned a a philanthropic piece, but, I mean, from a financing standpoint, obviously possibly government approval standpoint, what do you need? Like, our listeners out there in podcast land listening right now, can they contribute? Is there a a way to do that? What is needed?
0: There there is there is a way to do that. And, you know, I said earlier, you know, if you can give a dollar, give a dollar, you give 500 bucks, give 500 bucks, you know, do what you can do. Uh, SFpublicgolf.org, There's a donate button. You could designate it for sharp park specifically. It's fine. Um, we have, uh, we sell head covers that say save sharp park for donations and, and all that stuff, but it's all on the website. But what, what we need, Uh, we've got the money. Okay. We have the philanthropic resources, although we want, we don't want it to be one person or two person or three. We want it to be a community of people. That's why we say, look, if all you can give is $25, you're a Sharp Park supporter and you're equal to the guy who gives $10,000. Okay. We want people to participate and there's, there's no contribution that's too small. And I guarantee you there's none that's too large. Um, uh, so uh, money is important. Equally important is knowledge and advocacy Um, that, again, we want people to know about this. We want them to write about it. We want them to talk about it, Uh, writing letters to uh, the San Francisco Recreation and Park Department, Uh, you know, advocacy in the golf organizations, whether it's the USGA or the PGA of America, the Golf Course Superintendents Association, the Golf Course Architects of America, all those places – to, to ask them, step up, what are you doing to support Sharp Park and places like Sharp Park? Sharp Park isn't the only one. I'm not here to say it's the only course worthy of restoration. There are a lot of them. There's Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia. There are the courses in uh, in, in Washington, D.C. There's Goat Hill down in, uh, in San Diego. And I'm just, you know, skimming the, the icing off the cake here. Um, uh, but Sharp, I'm obviously passionate about it. It's so deep with this McKenzie tie. Uh, Where do you get a chance to to find a course like that and have a hand in improving it, restoring it for a future generation? I just as a golfer, how can you not do this? How could you not? How could you walk by that place, not stop and say, I'm going to help make this happen?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I I can't do it. I'll I'll say that. I can't. I can't either. I can't do it. As a matter of fact, I've been uh, working with Andy Staples on a uh, something we're calling or he's calling community links. And it's all about helping to fund these public projects like this that are important to communities or important from an architectural standpoint that need to be saved. And it's really a philanthropic arm nonprofit that will drive Funds towards restoring important golf courses around the country? Because I think there's a lot of people out there that really do care about history and they care about saving courses exactly like Sharp Park. I have to believe that.
0: So I, I, I do too. And, and I think the best example of it, Connor, is what university, what college in America exists without an endowment? The answer it, the answer is zero, okay? And, and how do they get those endowments? They get them brick by brick, dollar by dollar. And let's, let's be frank about it. There are some very successful alumni who give happily enormous sums of money because they want to do the right. They're, they're, they're fortunate enough to be successful. They're, they're generous enough and civic-minded enough to not be selfish, and to leave behind something for, for the public good. And and I believe in that spirit, and it's something that makes our community strong, makes our country strong, makes the world better. And golf needs that. Golf needs that. And, and I am convinced golf is going to have that. You know, the alumni is coming back to the campus, and the campus is a place like Sharp Park a place where people can can endow the chemistry lab and buy the books for the library and, and ha- have a, a chair in their name. Um, it, it can be done. It should be done. And you know what? It's going to be done before we're through with all this. That's, that's, I'm a little bit of like Johnny Appleseed does in the, so the idea around, but, but I believe in it and I think it's important and just think, think where we would be if this were to happen. Um, there's so much wealth in this country and and people of goodwill who will share it. Um, and and again, we've been lucky enough to attract two or three very wonderful uh, supporters who insist on staying anonymous. Um, they're unbelievable people, and uh, they're they're doing it because they love it and they know it's right. And um, and, and again, it's it's the kind of project, the kind of place it calls out. You know, I, I'm, I'm known for quoting a, a, a line from Shoeless Joe, the book that uh, spawned the movie Feel the Dreams, when when, when Moonlight Graham says to uh, Ray Kinsella, he says, you know, once the land gets inside you, the wind never blows so cold again. You feel for it like it was your child. And, That's the way we feel about Sharp Park. That's the way people feel about it. And it's the way they feel about Cobbs Creek and and Goat Hill and these other courses. They're places where we learned the game. They're places where we grew up, and we're not going to let them die. It's not going to happen. And I wish it were easy. I wish it were quick. It's not easy, and it's not quick. But here we are. We've invested, uh, you know, in the famous phrase, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. (laughs) And and we're— We're going to see it through to the end, happily, I hope.
1: Yeah, I suppose to go to another uh, book reference, If You Build It, They Will Come, right? Uh, Ray Kinsella's... Oh, uh, yeah. ...brings home.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely.
1: I'm going to give you a chance before we end here. What do you want the listeners here to take away? Give me a diatribe, if you will, on what are the most important things for them to take away from, not just this podcast, but from Sharp Park.
0: Well, uh, golf has been a very special part of my life. Um, And I have learned so much about how to live, how to be a good citizen, how to be a good husband, good parent. Uh, And golf taught me that. No book taught me that. Playing golf taught me that. And I am determined that every young person who wants to be exposed to the game, can be exposed to the game, will be exposed to the game. And even kids who may not know anything about the game ought to at least experience it as part of a physical education program, just like they play kickball and softball and basketball. Um, And one of the ways that happens is by having public facilities that kids and their families can enjoy at modest cost. And so the first thing I'd want people to take away is that we all have a duty. We all have a stake in making this happen. It's important to each individual community. Secondly, golf has existed for 500 years because people have been true to its roots. They've been true to its history. And when part of that history frays a little bit, it's our job to sew it back together so it can last for people who come after us to enjoy. You know, there's a reason why the Declaration of Independence still hangs in Washington, D.C., the original parchment, is somebody saved it. And whether it's uh, the Bible, the five books of Moses, whatever great texts, a golf course is like a great text. You learn from it. You read from it. You you grow from it. And it's about preserving things like that. And, and lastly, uh, You know, this is golf's a lot of fun and people need to know that just because something may be difficult doesn't mean it isn't worth doing. And some of the most rewarding lessons you get in life are from things that were hard and there are bumps in the road. Everything hasn't been smooth for us, but we saw the finish line. We see the finish line. We are close to the finish line. And what I want people to know is, these things happen when people are committed, they happen when they're dedicated, and they happen when they stick with it. And uh, this place is is so worthy of our time and our effort and our love that I just hope enough people read about it, think about it, learn about it, and if they have the chance, get down, down, down there to see it for themselves. That's my message.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect way to go out. I, I think... I'll leave you with two things before we sign out here. One is I'm so glad you went against one of Bobby Jones' famous quotes, play the ball as it lies. I think it could have been too easy to just accept the fate of Sharp Park and not fight for it, and I'm very thankful that you have. Um, The last thing I would like to just leave you with, and I know you won't do this, but I think to end the the chapter um, in a fully restored Sharp Park uh, you, you mentioned uh, the holes being named after periods in uh, Alistair McKenzie's life. My only suggestion is we end the uh, name the 18th hole Bo Links because I I'm, I'm inspired by you to do more. I I think it's a perfect <laughs> attribute to what you've done at Sharp Park, and it, and it moves me. And I hope it moves everybody who's listening to this.
0: Well, you're you're very sweet and you're very kind. And I will only say this, I. I could never accept something like that simply because it isn't me. It, it's a whole lot it's a whole lot of people and and you know that's one of the things that that yeah, I'm a realist I know how the world works we tend to we tend to simplify stuff and I'm not being critical of that thank you for, for saying it it's, it's really very nice. Um, but uh, you know I just hope that that somebody someday says, who did this and if they mention my name, in the same sentence as Alistair McKenzie, that's good enough for me. That's my reward.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think on that, I think we're going to end the podcast. I think we could go on forever, but uh, for sake of time, we'll end. We're right on the hour mark. So uh, thank you so much for joining episode 21 of the Tucking Golf History Podcast. Bo, I think we're going to have you on again. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've inspired me. I think I need to pick up art as well as uh, I, I'm never going to write that book. But I'm inspired. Thank you what so you much.
0: What you got? Yeah. What you What you, you got to do is go to Amazon.com and get "Follow the Wind."
1: Oh, i I you know what? That was what started me here. That's your, your Ben Hogan story, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I'm going to get it now. now there's a guy. Now. There's There's a guy who never quit.
1: Yeah, that's true. So, thank you so much, uh, folks. This is episode 21 of the Talking Golf History podcast. Thank you for listening.